Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. In this episode, I welcome Drew Hinkis. He is an attorney with Carlton Fields based in Miami, Florida, working as part of its national blockchain and digital currency practice. He's also a co-founder and the general counsel of Athena Blockchain, which is a professional services firm focused on tokenized investments. Previously nominated as one of Coindesk's most influential people in blockchain in 2017, Drew is frequently quoted and cited in articles related to digital assets and blockchain technology. He regularly speaks at legal, industry, and academic conferences. Drew's areas of expertise focus on legal and business issues related to public network cryptocurrency systems, that's a mouthful, and decentralized system governance, and also the legal and ethical issues related to cryptocurrency systems. Last but not least, he's a dear friend. He's wicked smart and funny. I know you'll enjoy this conversation and learn a lot in the process. Time to listen, learn, and leverage. So let's get started. Today, I welcome to the show Andrew, also known as Drew Hinkis, a blockchain and crypto assets attorney and professor at NYU's Leonard N. Stern School of Business. He's also one of my most favorite people in this space. And fun fact, he's an expert tweeter, which is actually his most important skill set and accomplishment. I'm sure he agrees. Drew Hinkis, welcome. Thank you so much, Professor. How you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm so glad that we were finally able to find time in our mutual schedules to connect and have this conversation. Uh, I know it's obviously one of our most favorite topics in the world for all things cryptographically secured, uh, but also you're one of my favorite people truly in the space and one of our foremost thought leaders, particularly with respect to the intersection of business and law and technology. So it's really a thrill to have you on and I look forward to our conversation. Oh, thank you so much. It's a it's a pleasure and a delight to be here, and I'm looking forward to a uh, a great chat. Excellent. So, some might refer to you, and and in fact, in my introductory remarks, I refer to you as a crypto lawyer. Um, that's probably not the way that, and may, you correct me if I'm wrong. It may not be the way that you normally refer to yourself. I don't ordinarily refer to myself as a crypto professor, for example, but I know people in general try to distinguish between those who have some expertise in other areas and also in cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, distributed ledger technology. So talk about what being a quote unquote crypto lawyer means to you, what that even means, and and also how you got into the space. Sure. Well, not everybody gets to have a cool nickname for their practice. So calling me a crypto lawyer or saying that I practice in the crypto area, uh, I take that in stride. Um, it's a reflection of the fact that there's a, a tremendous amount of interest in the area. And it's also a, a reflection of the fact that 
the area suffers from some really bad nomenclature. The words that we use are very imprecise and they're very poorly confused, uh, poorly understood and, and, and in some ways confusing. Uh, but what does it mean to be what they would call a crypto lawyer? What it means is I'm practicing law for private clients, in this case, uh, through my law firm, Carlton Fields, uh, in matters that relate to crypto assets, digital assets that use blockchains or blockchain technology in some way. And, and these matters range from tax to litigation, to securities, to money transmission and regulatory licensure, estate planning. Um, at this point, 11 years into Satoshi's experiment, crypto pretty much has influenced or some sort of impact in almost every part of the law. And I'm very fortunate that I'm at a firm that supports me where I've got partners and teammates who have experienced, some of whom actually have been in crypto about as long as I have been, um, and for those who are not, we've got folks that are very hungry and eager to learn. The firm believes in the area as one of growth and um, their investments appear to be paying off really nicely. It's really important what you have built at the firm and and this practice area, this track that you continue to pursue. You also teach in a JD MBA program and it, you know, as someone who teaches myself at the JD level as well, it's critically important that this next wave of lawyers knows how to meet the demands of those innovators in this space in particular. What are some of the, the skill sets or, or, or knowledge bases that you find are critically important in order to service clients who are working specifically in crypto and the blockchain space that a lawyer who is just entering into the space would need to know of or a business person moving into the space would need to know of or be acutely aware of? Sure. So having the opportunity to teach at NYU has really been one of these pinch me, I think I'm dreaming sorts of experiences. Uh, becoming an adjunct professor, both at the law school and at the business school at NYU, is one of the most wonderfully serendipitous things ever to happen to me. I'm eternally grateful to my friend, Professor Sarah Kaufman over at the Wagner School and to Professor Yermak um, at the Stern School, uh, with whom I co-teach the class for giving me the opportunity. Um, and the students that we have at, in the school are, are just remarkable. They're, as you might imagine, being NYU students, unbelievably bright, and many of them are really interested in becoming active members of the crypto community. Some of the former students have gone on uh, to join significant law firms and are working with clients in the area, and some of the uh, business school students are also working in financial services. So to directly address your question, I find that having familiarity with the technology and being able to um, really understand how these systems work beyond the hype that's being sold is probably the most important thing that you can learn. And our class both looks at, but tries to put all this technology in a in the context of sort of the evolution of financial services, but also tries to situate the technology and its impact in the context of existing law and whether we need to change, replace, or come up with new law in order to accommodate these assets and systems within the existing law. Um, as the professor who's primarily responsible for the law curriculum, um, as you can imagine, given the speed at which things change in crypto, I basically have to junk my um, syllabus every semester and start over from scratch. Right. Absolutely. I find that myself. And I'm even more uh, conscious and sometimes anxious about that very point because things literally change every day. So I teach in the online context. So there's a certain portion 
of the content that I deliver that I have recorded. But the magic is really in one, having to reassess everything on an ongoing basis and two, responding in time to the things that hit our news cycle, which because the crypto space is 24 seven, 365, our mm-hmm. understanding, our learning, the evolution, the responses to, and, and what is appropriate at any given time certainly changes. Uh, that makes it very exciting. I have never been more excited personally or professionally about a space as this one in 10 years from now, maybe we'll be speaking about something else, but something that you've hit on is critically important to understand that we are not only training minds for, to respond to business and law and technology today, but I often talk about for the space and the jobs and the clients that don't necessarily even exist yet, but being mindful of that and being just far more nimble in the 21st century than I think we as attorneys were in the 20th century, where we had the luxury of sitting around and waiting for months and maybe delivering a legal opinion that's 50 pages long. And obviously, legal opinions matter and being thoughtful and mindful and including all the information is important. But the business person of today in general, and particularly in the technology space that is moving at a meteoric pace doesn't respond well to waiting for months for the 50-page legal opinion. Have you found that as well? And have you discussed that with your students? Well, we can go way down the rabbit hole of how uh, business and law are interacting and the changes with respect to business use of lawyers and how the sort of power dynamics have really shifted and law firms have responded by becoming innovative in their fee structures. I, I think bigger picture because of the relative youth of this industry and in certain cases, the amount of reliance upon lawyers, for those who are practicing in this area, your clients are going to be really relying on you for a tremendous amount of context in addition to the legal services. And so in, in the way that we try to teach this class and explain to the students, we hammer how important it is to move past the marketing hype and to really understand the substance of what these systems and assets promise versus how they are marketed. Uh, We're still seeing a significant delta between those two things, but I think as the markets and the professionals that are providing services in these markets mature and evolve, that uh, that gap is going to narrow and we're going to start to see perhaps real use, which is exciting. Yes, it is a really exciting time in the space. And just remember so many people saying, you know, in 2017 in particular, there are a lot of quote unquote use cases. And and we did have a lot of that, right? A lot of white papers, a lot of all hat, no cattle, as they might say in Texas. Um, We are in a completely different space and time now where it really is exciting. And I think that ICO boom and bust as it were, as, as things recalibrated, left in the space, people who continue to build and um, that narrowing to really focus on the viability of projects has precipitated a really interesting time that we are entering into now where I'm really excited about a lot of the projects that have gone from use case to the beginning of use, actual use that in a really exciting way. So let's switch over to something that you have a decided expertise in, and that's the regulatory landscape. And I know you receive questions all the time and is a part of uh, a substantial part of your practice. I certainly receive questions as well about what the regulatory landscape is currently. Um, We could spend 
an entire semester or several years <laughs> or an entire practice talking about all of it. So I know it's, you know, we're painting it a bit with a broad brush, but I do want to stay at a high level to one. Um, well, let's start here. What agencies are implicated, you know, the, the ones that immediately come to mind when you think about regulation in this space, both here in the United States. Well, we, let's start here in the U.S. I don't think that we have the space in our 30 minutes together to talk about all of the landscape. But mm-hmm. what's the regulatory landscape in the in the United States and any others at a uh, maybe an international level that immediately come to mind that people should be aware of? Sure. Well, the obvious ones for the United States, the IRS, we've seen tax guidance in 2014 and 2019. FinCEN actually came out with the first guidance. They are the arm of Treasury, which is responsible for money for money transmission and for financial sanctions. And they came out with guidance in 2013. We've seen a significant uptick in criminal enforcement activity by the Department of Justice. Um, obviously, the SEC and to a lesser extent FINRA became very activated by the sales of tokens that mushroomed from 2015 to 2018. Um, The Commodities Futures Trade Commission has essentially asserted that it has jurisdiction over Bitcoin and apparently Ethereum. Um, And there's a really fascinating interplay between the SEC and CFTC with respect to these assets. A little bit less known but still active is the FTC, which has addressed certain fraud types of matters with respect to crypto assets. And then you've got state-level regulators. Um, The NASA, which is the state and provincial, Canadian provincial securities regulators, have been exceptionally active through their Operation Crypto Sweep, um, something like 200-plus active investigations still ongoing. And this doesn't even address state-level litigation or the sort of pseudo-police work being done by um, the plaintiff's bar bringing class actions against certain issuers and certain intermediaries. So if you would ask me in 2013, this was a real easy answer. It's FinCEN and that's it. Nowadays, there's a really complicated environment and it seems like on a pretty regular basis, another regulator is uh, asserting some jurisdiction and getting involved. On an international level, we've started to see primarily the Financial Action Task Force, which is a organization of some 50 some odd major national economies that work together to establish policy through something called recommendations. And they have been active since, I believe, also 2014 in addressing crypto assets. And this summer, this past summer, they came out with regulation that uh, suggests that crypto systems like Bitcoin and and others that are used primarily as a means of uh, exchanging value may start to function very differently. Um, So that's definitely one to keep your eyes on as well. This is um, a really important point for listeners to understand that because of the the characteristics of distributed ledger technology, blockchains, of being in and now, you know, speaking from a pure and public permissionless chain, for example, that we have to extend our understanding beyond borders because one of the key characteristics that was presented by Satoshi and 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 others as we continue to build in this space, that we're talking borderless. Of course, we have geofences and all sorts of other things at at certain choke points. And and I think of moments like where one would onboard from fiat into the crypto world, for example. There are a number of places and spaces where 
regulation is key. And obviously this technology is not developing in a vacuum. So those early on who said, you know, we don't need the laws. Our law is the code. And I, I certainly understand Lex Cryptographica, but it doesn't exist or develop in a vacuum. And so having a full appreciation, not just for where something is being developed, but its impact globally is critically important. And I do think that more people in the space have, <laughs> for lack of a better word, resigned themselves to this reality uh, about how to, if we are really focused on, or, or those who are building in the space, really focused on mass adoption and scaling beyond the fringes of, of what might be the cypherpunk movement, how to main, have this be mainstream and to scale to make sure that it is a compliance with existing laws. Uh, another thought always comes to mind. Um, I'm sure you've given it a lot of thought as well about what, if any, laws need to change. But if there is no new law, if there is no new taxonomy act, if there is no new law or regulation that applies in the space in, in, in the United States in particular, we have the laws we have. <laughs> and we have the regulators who are involved in, in, in a multi layer level, and you have to be responsive to that, which means that your practice is, is probably quite robust in navigating all of these spaces. Well, so I view cryptocurrency and blockchain systems, at least the public network systems, sim the same way that I view uh, the environment and privacy. One nation deciding it wants to pass laws is you know, somewhat effective, but if you want to have an effective way of dealing with the problem, it needs to be global. Because the environment has externalities that affect others. Crypto, if you decide that you're going to regulate one market decidedly differently than another, then all you're doing is creating arbitrages for those that know how to get to these other less regulated markets. And same thing with privacy. Data is insidious and it travels across boundaries. And so if there isn't sort of international consensus on how to regulate these three problems, and I'm, there might be others, but these are the three that come to mind, then ultimately all you're doing is incentivizing those to find arbitrages or to sort of sneak around the fences. And that's right. ultimately the best outcome. Uh, but from a sort of a, a, a bigger picture, do we need to change the law? Do we need new laws? Do we need to just sort of insightfully interpret our existing laws? Um, you, you've sort of stumbled into the framework that I use to teach my class, which is the debate between Frank Easterbrook, Judge Easterbrook, and right. Lawrence Lett as to whether there needs to be a law of the horse. And this was in the context of, uh, the early days of the internet when there was a uh, conference at the University of Chicago of they invited you know most of the best most of the best legal minds to talk about what the law should be of cyberspace people were very concerned about intellectual property issues the ease of copying information and all of the challenges that you would have thought about when you realized the internet was going to be a thing but it's 1993 and we're basically watching it emerge from the primordial ooze and Frank right. Easter who is a, a very brilliant man, a long-term federal judge, basically said, you don't need the law of the internet, just like you don't need to teach the law of the horse. You can teach horse torts and you can teach horse transactions. But if you want students to learn, you teach them the law of general application. And then once they understand the law, you teach them how to apply it to specific fact scenarios. And that you know, generally makes sense. Lawrence Lessig, a professor at Harvard, was in the room and he thought about it apparently and came to something of a different conclusion about the internet, which is that when you can create a space that is governed by the rules of software, the software it's, in a sense creates the law there. And of course, folks in our beloved crypto community have taken that concept and 
contorted it and misconstrued it to mean a bunch of other things that are basically nonsense. But the, uh, the, the crux of the disagreement between Professor Lessig and Judge Easterbrook is when there's new technology that creates new situations, do you need to adapt the law or do you need to make new law? And in the context of the Internet, I always ask my students who was right and who was wrong. And as you might imagine, the answer is they were both right. right. We have new privacy law and we have some new intellectual property law and we have domain name arbitration um, to address new assets that didn't exist prior to the Internet. And so in that respect, Professor Lessig was obviously correct, but we still use that Corbin book from back in the day and we still have property law. We just sort of had to twist it around a little bit to make it make sense. And I I really think that's what's going to happen with crypto as well. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. The Tech Intersect podcast is released to the public every Friday, but as an Advantage Evans member, you'll receive first listen access and live Tech Intersect Connect video chats. Premium members also receive a copy of my ebook, The Gen Xer's Guide to Upskilling in a Web 3.0 World, and unlimited access to the video, chat, replays, and bonus episodes. My pro members, ready to leverage what they've listened to and learned, receive access to the Upskilling Self-Guided Course and VIP group coaching calls. So as you can see, Advantage Evans' membership adds substantial value to your podcast experience. And there are three ways to take advantage. (laughs) See what I did right there? Of all that the Tech Intersect podcast has to offer. So subscribe now and let's listen, learn, and leverage together. And now, back to the conversation. That makes a lot of sense because when we think about the infrastructure that is being developed at this point in time, obviously, cryptographically secured assets and distributed ledger technology is a part of the Web 3.0 build, right? And we put on top of that artificial intelligence, machine learning, AR, VR, IoT, all the things that are part and parcel of the Web 3.0 build and things that will be built on top of that. So when when we talk about the development of the rails, the infrastructure, it just makes sense, as you said, that it would follow the lead of every iteration of technology in this space, right? Web 1.0, Web 2.0. And as we move forward, that we will have this combination. There's a certain part of it that needs to be the structure that is agreed upon at an international level. And then there will always be this over the overlay of some international rules, regulations, guidelines, where you have countries who are signatories and we have certain conventions and best practices that are adhered to. And then you have how things play off, play it themselves out at a federal level. And as you say, we get down to the state level. I compare New York to Wyoming and all of the innovation 
going on at the state level here within the United States. And so that is part of, I can imagine, what the concern is of those who are innovating in the space about whether or not the United States would be their home, and if so, what particular state, or whether they take their project overseas. That's a a story for another day. But Mm -hmm. um, I often have these conversations with people. Yeah, it's a lot easier for a smaller country that has one regulator that does everything. It's, you know, we're comparing apples to oranges sometimes when we can compare those countries to the United States. Um, I recently had the opportunity to also sit in on the LibraCoin hearings, at least on the uh, House Financial Services side, and um, to also talk with people there about even the committees, the wrangling as between committees about who gets to say what happens or what hearings are called or how legislation is even offered. So uh, it's complicated. Uh, I think it's improving and, and, and time will tell, but I think we're actually right where we're supposed to be. <laughs> I, I understand the impatience in, in the technology space, but I'm less concerned about that and more hopeful about how we're developing. Um, and that leads me to the next topic I want to cover with you, because I know recently you moderated a discussion around stable coins, uh, one that was obviously at the fore and, and getting all of the attention was Facebook's Libra coin. But I'm more interested in talking more at a higher level just about one, if you could provide a definition for what a stable coin is, as we compare and contrast it to Bitcoin, for example, and then what it, how stable coins fit into the overall taxonomy of crypto assets. Sure. So stable coins are once again, a sloppy marketing driven term for a <laughs> instrument. I know I'm so jaded. <laughs> I love that. I'm trying not to laugh because my producer said I'm not supposed to laugh or say, you know, this is not supposed to be call and response. I'm just supposed to be quiet when you speak. But that just gave me life. Continue. Oh, look, the, this, has been a, this has been an industry that's been heavily marketing driven. And so you get things that sound great that may not be reflective of reality. And stable coins here is one of them. The idea of a stable coin is that you're going to create a digital instrument that's not going to fluctuate in value. This is a absurd proposition because everything fluctuates in value. The mm-hmm. U.S. dollar fluctuates in value. Metals fluctuate in value. Everything is valued relative to other things and nothing with it without government price fixing stays stable. But stable coins are essentially an attempt to try to preserve or stabilize as much as possible the value of an instrument. And so you can think about it as an instrument that is supposed to mimic the stability of a fiat currency or something similar. And um, remember, these digital assets generally take on the attributes of the promises made upon issuance or upon sale. So if you um, if you say that something is going to represent equity, then it represents equity. If you say something's going to be legally considered to be a debt instrument, then you probably are taking on some obligation to pay some interest in, and perhaps pay back the, the sum that was invested long term. When you say that you have an asset that's going to be a stable coin, what you're really saying is one of a couple things. We're going to tr- we as the issuer are going to take some action in order to try to keep the price of this asset in the market more or less at the price you bought it from. And so there's essentially three ways that this is done. The first is the instrument issued, that digital asset issued, is backed, in air quotes, by a thing that has some value. Whether it's backed by a a dollar in a trust account, 
um, which is the model of folks like Paxos and Gemini that are trust companies that hold assets and issue one of their instruments per dollar. You can say that you're going to hold an asset of value at one-to-one and maybe not do it, like is alleged to have happened with Tether. And then there are all kinds of other platforms and, and products that say that they're backed by gold or by diamonds or by real estate or commodities of all kinds. So that's kind of one bucket. Then you've got a bucket where you've got an instrument where somebody promises that they're going to manipulate the markets so that they're always viable at the same price and always sellable at the same price. And so some of these you'll hear called algorithmic coins because they basically use um, trading patterns that are done by sort of automated by computers on the relevant markets so that you can always buy it at a dollar and you can always sell it at a dollar. And then you have some that are sort of programmatically stabilized. And that's what I would call MakerDAO, which is a really confusing but super interesting DeFi project whereby you essentially deposit some value and have an entitlement to take out a certain amount of another asset. And it works sort of like a a a collateralized debt swap. Way too complicated for our discussion. But essentially, you've got things that are maintained at a price, things that are synthetically algorithmically maintained at a price and things that are nominally backed by some sort of asset of value. And there's lots of problems with all of these approaches, but they're tremendously interesting and they're very, very important. Absolutely. And I know that, so we've described some that are, some of these projects or the ones that I think that have come up are outside of a government structure. And then we have the discussion within various governments. Uh, some governments have, are, or or will talk about moving their fiat, government-issued currency, to a fully digital issuance, mm-hmm. right? These, dig, uh, these digital fiat currencies. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about those as you compare and contrast between what I, what I call more of a corporate currency versus a digital fiat currency. Yeah, as you'd imagine, I have a lot of thoughts, but I'll, I'll try to I'll try to keep it to a low roar. The idea of a government issuing its currency as a digital token is incredibly interesting. It could provide the government with a tremendous amount of savings in the form of seniorage for the issuance of their currency. It could provide them with unparalleled insight into transactions. You think automated tax withdrawal, but. The flip side of all that is that it would also provide them with automated tax withdrawal and tremendous insights into transactions, which in some places is sort of what happens already. But here in the U.S., it really implicates significant privacy concerns. Uh, The central bank digital currency plan that most people talk about is a a remnant of the Chicago plan uh, from post-depression, which called for everybody to have a depository account with the Federal Reserve and everything clears through the Fed. The problem is that if you do that, then the Federal Reserve or the government bank of choice knows everything that you've done. And um, we would, as Americans, we've got a bunch of privacy rights which are unique and compelling and worthy of protection. And one of those rights is the right to have, you know, to, the right to use currency in a way that is private. We've got cash right. rights that allows you to more or less engage in private transactions and almost every digital form of value transfer create some kind of record that uh, increasingly is easy for the government to get. And so if you value privacy and think that it's important, and I certainly do, and the drafters of the Fourth Amendment also did, then you need to be gravely concerned about central bank digital currencies providing 
the government with a panopticon on its people, full surveillance at all times of all of your economic activity. And as the Supreme Court has observed, if you know everything a person does with their money, you basically know everything a person does. So I look at central bank digital currencies as absolutely inevitable, as a potentially very useful tool for governments, but also as one that needs to be implemented in a thoughtful way uh, to preserve our rights. A central bank digital currency that does not preserve the same privacy rights as you have with cash, to me, could be a real disaster and should be avoided. And I've talked to folks that are interested in designing these systems and Uh, The good news is there is thoughtful discussion going on as to how governments can provide systems and create these products um, in thoughtful ways so as not to create sort of these panopticons, uh, because I don't think really anybody, at least in the United States, wants that. Really great points. And I even, you know, separate and aside from the government aspects of it, even when I think about public permissionless chains and folks who... um, describe cryptocurrencies as being anonymous uh, there, you know, I think of Monero, the Moneros of the world, but most times when people say that they are misunderstanding and misrepresenting Bitcoin, for example, as being pseudonymous, but one of the easiest way to track things is to track public addresses and follow the quote unquote money. And from a, a forensics point of view, there are a lot of people who are going to spend a lot of time in jail if they're not already doing so, thinking that they were operating. And that is on the bad faith criminal side. There are a whole host of reasons to move money without involving yourself in anti- in money laundering or some nefarious activity. And your comments have hit on that precisely. Privacy does not equate and track criminal. No, and the, right. There's this wide suspicion that if you have nothing to hide, why do you need to hide it? And that's nonsense. That's not what this country was built on. Uh, With all due deference to the memory of Justice Scalia, a brilliant man, uh, it's not only the wicked that hide. There are a lot of people who may have a lot of reasons that they do not want to engage with law enforcement at a given time. Similarly, there may be a lot of people who feel like they should have a choice in how they transact. There There may be people who decide that they would rather save money and not use expensive, slow systems in order to transact value from place to place. And um, the messaging is somewhat concerning, but most privacy advocates are going to articulate the arguments much better than I will. My only takeaway for the listeners at home is if central bank digital currencies do not provide us with the same features as cash, we're giving away something very, very important. Really powerful. Thank you uh, for those words. Um, and I want to s- uh, switch over in the time that we have remaining to transition into innovation in this space. Recently, I saw a bunch of tweets, but I know that you had something to say about the Winklevoss twins who have they uh, own Gemini or they launched Gemini, the crypto exchange, but they also have set up now uh, their own insurance company to cover potential loss of crypto held in cold storage. Uh, there's you know, possibly this record-breaking $200 million limit, which is critically important. And you noted that insurance in the crypto space is like the next cross-industry to explode within the crypto ecosystem. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Uh, one, if you could define most, some will know what cold storage even is, if you could just say what that is in particular and why you think insurance in custody is a critically important topic and um, 
sector within the space? Sure. So crypto assets used in their natural environment, which is controlled by public and private keys using software or hardware wallets, are prone to loss. And unlike most systems of value transaction that we're used to, there's no customer service to call to reverse a transaction or in certain cases to reset a password. Uh, A lot of modern systems include things like seed phrases or other ways that you can back up a wallet, but it is going to happen over time repeatedly that people will lose private keys and find themselves shut out of their assets. And that's a problem, especially if you want institutional investors, investors who have fiduciary duties to others to engage with this um, market and with these products. So there are a few things that folks are looking at in order to help get this industry more in line with other uh, areas of attractive investment. One that you that you mentioned was custody. And custody, and depending on what you're doing, can mean a couple different things. Custody in the sort of I'm trading crypto for crypto sense is how do I know that it's mine and that it's protected? And there are a variety of different ways that you can do this. Um, there are a lot of custody providers who you can contract with who for a fee will hold your assets in a way that is not connected to the internet and is otherwise not accessible without certain appropriate steps being taken. And that right now is sort of the standard as to how people look at it. If you have something that's in cold storage, it's unlikely to be compromised and taken away from you. And um, you know, for now, that's good. There are a bunch of new ideas out there. Multi-party computation is the newest one that we're starting to see a lot of attention paid to. Uh, it's the idea that numerous people have to compute a key in order for the key to be used. This is sort of multiple signature wallet, the next iteration of that. From an investment standpoint, however, if you're a 40 act company or if you're doing certain things that require you to be a registered investment advisor, then you have a completely separate set of, or then you have a completely separate set of obligations as far as how you custody things. And the industry is waiting for the SEC and FINRA to uh, get their acts together and figure out how they want us to custody stuff. And and I say get their acts together. I don't mean that to sound disrespectful at all. These are complicated issues. These are very difficult questions to answer because these assets are super new and work very differently than other assets that these regulators are used to working with. And so uh, it's a big challenge. We've seen at least one state take it on and their model is interesting. That's Wyoming. And their model is interesting and something that no doubt the regulators are um, studying. Brief segue. I keep talking about the regulators. You probably are interested in what I think about this, and I'll tell you in a sentence. The regulators in the United States are doing a great job. We may not love the decisions that they make, but their decisions have been mostly principled and have not killed the industry. Um, I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to see what our regulators have done, and I look forward to getting continued good service out of our government employees who are tasked with the difficult task of trying to figure out how to make the old rules in this new technology make sense together. Pivoting back to your question about insurance, part of getting in institutional and more conservative investors comfortable with this, this ecosystem of assets is what do you do if you screw up? You need to have insurance, but insurance uh, requires that there be underwriting, which means that there needs to be an insurance company that understands and can evaluate and put a number on the risk. Insurance companies have been looking in this industry for years and for a variety of reasons have mostly come in on the directors and officers and errors and omissions area of policy coverage. 
Of course, if you're willing to pay sky high premiums, I'm sure that there are certain underwriters of Lloyd's that'll write you an excess policy for or, or an excess policy for just about whatever you want. Right. Uh, but coming in and providing captive insurance is a really significant um, area that I think a lot of companies are going to start to uh, look at. And if you have a crypto company and you've been having a difficult time finding insurance, I suggest that you educate yourselves about what captive insurance companies are and how they can be helpful. Very quickly, they are essentially the ability for the company to legally create a structure where they self-insure. And so they are, in a sense, taking on some of the risk, but also being able to use insurance policies as a way to mitigate that risk. And uh, captives is a whole separate topic that's really worthy of exploration. But what we see with the Gemini announcement and certain other announcements that we've seen from other important intermediaries in the space is that we are finally getting policies out there that can get people comfortable with these assets. And as the song goes in crypto, the more institutional buy-in into the industry, the more likely it is that people who are in the industry will be successful. And I have kind of an interesting view on that. My goal as a lawyer is to make sure that we don't um, we, that we don't mess up the, the implementation of the law to this technology to the point that the technology is no longer usable. And uh, I believe that this technology ultimately is something that we need to keep viable in case the 50-year fiat experiment crashes and burns in some you know, unfortunate event where we need to try to figure out a new way to rebuild the economy. A lot of the tools that Satoshi has given us and that we've built from Satoshi's gifts have the potential to help us sketch out a new way of ordering the world's economies. And um, I think it's really critical that we can preserve that um, and innovate on top of it going forward. It's so well said. I am really, really encouraged about where we are. Uh, I think there are a lot of really complex problems and, or I'll say challenges, but a lot of really exciting opportunities with this technology in particular. I wholeheartedly agree with you when I think about uh, regulators and legislators, but regulators in particular who have had the good fortune of either they're coming on to, to speak to my class or, or interacting with at various conferences and, and behind closed doors sessions to really understand how they're thinking. I think they're being really thoughtful. <laughs> I, you know, I think that they serve uh, an important purpose when you think of the SEC, for example, of, of, finding the sweet spot between encouraging innovation, but protecting consumers, investors, that's their role. And it doesn't matter what kind of sophisticated or exotic investment interests and products that come along, that the rules are the rules and the purpose and the goal is the same. I see a lot of carrot. I suspect there will be a lot of stick <laughs> as well for the bad actors. And we don't need bad actors in the space because yeah. they don't do us any favors. Yeah, we are just parenthetically, we are heading into uh, about four years of very heavy litigation. We're going to, in my view, we're probably going to see regulators really step up enforcement. We're, we're entering a special time on the statute of limitations for certain claims. And so I would expect to see the next four years to be exceptionally busy um, in the sort of regulatory defense litigation side. I see that. I see that. Well, that means you will have to come on on multiple occasions to Tech Intersect to talk about what's going on in the space as we continue to learn and grow as well. 
Drew Hinkis, I appreciate you, sir. Um, you're a friend, you're a colleague, you're one of our really important thought leaders in the space. And, and I thank you very much for joining me for this conversation. I, I appreciate you having me. If anybody is interested in being in touch, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at propelforward, P-R-O-P-E-L forward. You can also find me on my website, andrewhinkis.com. And of course, you can find me on my law firm's website, carltonfields.com as well. Wow, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Drew, one of the top crypto lawyers in the industry. I know I did. I really enjoyed it. We covered a lot of ground to be sure, from what a crypto lawyer is to plain English explanations of crypto, Bitcoin, and blockchain. No small feat, I might add. And most importantly, we covered the regulatory landscape that applies to cryptocurrencies and what agencies are implicated here in the United States and given crypto's borderless features around the world. And what regulators should innovators in the space and the lawyers who represent them be aware of. And I really enjoyed our conversation about stablecoins, what they are, how they're different from other cryptographically secured digital tokens of value. And this is particularly relevant because a recent stimulus bill introduced in response to the COVID-19 crisis uh, introduced by Nancy Pelosi for the House Democrats, it included a provision to create a digital dollar or digital fiat, as we talked about. The final version of the economic stimulus package offered by Speaker Pelosi on behalf of the House Dems no longer, as of March 24th, includes the U.S. digital dollar proposal. However, the language, as proposed by Chairwoman Waters of the House Financial Services Committee, still does contain this language. So I'll include a link in the summary and a deeper dive of this topic in the Advantage Evans show notes. Please, everyone, stay safe in the midst of this pandemic. Wash your hands, stay home if you can, and be good to yourself and each other. Until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media. On Twitter, at, at @techintersect, and on Instagram via the handle techintersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.